My name is Michael Gaia, publisher of The Lead Lag Report. Join me forever with Max Osborne. Max, I've known you for a while, but you're a relative newcomer to the Spaces game. So introduce yourself to the audience. Who are you? What's your background? What have you done throughout your career? What are you doing currently? Thank you, Michael. Yeah, this is actually my first Spaces. So it's exciting to jump on with you right here. But uh, yeah, so I, I run an investment management firm, Osborne Capital Management. We run a number of custom strategies. It started off more as wealth management, but because we don't have a parent company, we can do really whatever we want within the guidelines, regulations. That's brought us into more concentrated stock positions, more trading strategies. Being in Boston 10 years ago, I lived across the street from the Circle office. So that was an early intro to crypto. So we, we do a number of crypto things. Um, we do some private investments. And really, I think in terms of the industry, I'm a generalist. So I can and do look at any, anything. But of course, the fun place to be or the place that I've spent the most of my time is really just deep diving into all of the, if you want to call it the top level tech. But where we are now in 2024, tech is really, I mean, it's everything. It's really taking over. So I think one of the things that Michael was and I were talking about recently was just how much nuance is, is needed to add to that, that, that category, that tech category. So anyways, yeah. So I manage about 180 million probably a little more outside of that and some of the private strategies that haven't really received any marks or anything like that. But yeah, that's where we are. Why is it you think that a lot of other investment advisors, managers, they shy away from more concentrated portfolio management? I mean, most of the RAs that I interact with, they're focused more on the traditional asset allocation mindset. Yeah. So, well, first off, from a purely compliance perspective, even if you go through training or when you get a Series 65, all of the questions and all, all of the uh, guidelines push you away from, quote, concentrated assets. A lot of the questions are like, oh, you got a client with a large stock. What do you do? You hedge it, you sell it. Like, how do you get out of it? They're really, from the compliance perspective, they don't respect the quality of the asset. They just want maximum diversification. And, and that's that, that does an insane disservice to the industry. The Look at the quality of the assets. We have people who have been holding Apple since the beginning. And I think the most extreme example is we have one guy who put, I think, 5,000 into Apple in the 1990. And he's, it's like a multi-billion dollar position now. If you were just to listen to the compliance team and say, yeah, this is really risky. You don't hold an individual stock, but you'd miss that whole thing. So there's a, the short answer to your question is it's driven entirely by compliance. Yeah. It's not just compliance. That's a part of it in terms of the quality of assets, but there's a total disregard for where you are in the cycle. Right. I mean, if you yeah. think about a traditional framework, right, the conservative risk profile investors should be primarily in bonds. That ended up being the riskiest thing the last two and a half years. Oh, totally. I mean, yeah, these sort of compliance questions, they're not they're either they're both not qualified and not even trying to assess where the markets are. So, yeah, you're exactly right. And it's funny, I've gotten in some arguments with people about with some friends in the industry about that bond issue. But the reality is the risk and the reward assessment of any of these assets. You know, when the 10 year, I think people almost forget how low the 10 year was during COVID. It was, it was well below 1%. What's your upside on owning bonds at that point? Do you expect to go into negative rates territory? You could eke out a couple percentage of points return because you're going into negative two. I, I mean, you don't have to short the asset. You can just not participate. That's, I think that's the best risk management tool in, in that case. I think the argument, the center of the argument that I've had is I don't have to predict 
that there's a good short there and then go short that asset and then make money that way. I can just go do something else. And, and clearly the something else has been large cap tech primarily for the last many years, right? Really starkly in the last two and a half, three years that bonds have sold off. So speaking about where we are in the cycle, well, you may have seen that post that has been circulating, but it was noted that the MAG7 have a larger total market cap than every other country's stock market with the exception of the US. Yeah. We've gotten to a point, right, where they, the tech side has really beyond dominated the world. Yeah. Uh, there, is a, there is a juncture there where that, that does present its own risk. So let's get uh, a sense of your own framework in terms of the MAG7, the tech momentum, and where we are on the cycle. Yeah, so I, I don't know if we, if I totally agree that we're late cycle with regards to maybe the MAG7. We just popped the cap off of the, call it the AI thing. That's been happening for a long time. And if we go back in time, I wrote about this four or five years ago. The themes that I was interested in from the tech perspective were cloud computing and semiconductors. And that's evolved into software. And then eventually you just call it AI. It's still been the same kind of grouping of assets. So now we've just entered in this new AI world. I think there's a lot of wasted money and there's a lot of maybe FOMO money, right? I, I would, maybe it's, I think on Twitter, we can we speak a little more loosely. I don't know this for sure, but Meta spending $16 billion on chips to get ahead of, of the AI race. I like, I, there's a little bit of a FOMO element, like they're going to overpay for those NVIDIA chips. They're going to get in early. Eventually this is going to mature, but this is still an early cycle, I think, on the AI side. And when you look at MAG7, the grouping changes, but essentially we're talking about Microsoft, Google, Amazon as being the three dominant cloud providers. There's a lot else, you know, other businesses going on in there, but that's like your global brain. And I guess to go off script a little bit here, if you ever play any kind of video games around like what the future would look like, or there's a factorial game that was popular on Twitter like a few years ago. People are always talking about this is, I think Shopify requires their engineers to play it as part of their training. Like you get to the late stage in the game and it's just a massive acceleration of computer chips because it's just, everything's based on automation. And that's where we're going, right? If, if you want to automate anything in your company, you're mostly running it through AWS, Google, or Microsoft. That is your global brain. It's all in the US and it's all concentrated in the top companies. So I think that's really critical. Yeah, I mean, it, it's winner take all, uh, but even in a, in using wildly large numbers, the large numbers that we're used to thinking about. Uh, is there a risk there uh, from a regulatory perspective? I mean, we can debate about anti-monopoly laws, but uh, presumably there is a, at some point, there's going to be some pushback from the legislators. I and, mean, you know, you're seeing it with some of these things like the Senate hearings and Zuckerberg, yeah. right, apologizing. But the reality is they're not really undoing at least right now. But where's the downside of all of that from a breakup potential? Yeah, so I'll put my risk hat on. And my primary risk for looking at any market is the convergence on any single factor. And unfortunately, the convergence on the factor right now is like every person's retirement account in the United States Every, all the economic performance, all the stock market performance, the confidence of the consumer, all those things are now converging on the single factor, which is just like how good are the earnings or fundamentals on MAG7. And so that convergence on the single factor, people have tried to do this like programmatically. And I can't remember the name of the test, but essentially what you want to see in a healthy market is a very wide variety of factors that are driving risk and return. And 
So yes, I, I would, from a risk perspective, say that we're in a very risky market because we are now reliant on essentially either a single or a reducing number of factors that are driving markets. Which is interesting, right? Because if that's the case, it's maximum risk and maximum risk, it means it's maximum systemic risk. Yeah. If maximum systemic risk, that means that uh, any kind of actions by policymakers, the Federal Reserve in particular, is really then just geared towards saving them. Yeah. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the lead lag report. And now, back to our discussion. I live in Boston, so that I have a lot of conservative, sorry, liberal friends who take a conservative view on how they want things regulated. And I get, I'm totally sympathetic to how we need to regulate Amazon marketplace practices, how, how they're abusive kind of practices going on at all these, all of the Mag7 companies. So I'm not anti-regulation on that. I think they, these companies have to, should be in front of Senate hearings and being evaluated constantly because they are essentially the most pop, uh, powerful entities in the world. I do, I do think also it's more than just that, right? They're also the most powerful entities in the world, not just because of their fundamentals, the network effect, but they do have the unfair advantage of being at the top of these market cap Vanguard passive types of strategies and getting that auto flow, that auto bid, right? Yeah. For one case. Yeah. So that that is very, I think, very supportive. Over the last 10 years, I think 10 years ago, we started to really slip into the pro Vanguard, pro indexing, pro S&P kind of movement. And the, the, the narrative around that is so strong now that I think that some of the quotes are, it's like, 90% of new investment dollars that come into 401ks or young people's investment accounts are just going straight into the S&P. And so the, I, I really like this looking at it this way, because you, on one side, you have the sort of GameStop, Wall Street bets, or maybe it's the Twitter, Fin Twitter crowd, which is really doing uh, off on their own path. And then on the other side, you just have all these flows into the S&P. Those flows are, are really supportive. I don't know. They're just very supportive for markets. I mean, it's an auto buying, one sided factor. You could say unemployment, rising unemployment is going to hurt that if people are not employed at these companies, they're not rolling their salaries into 401ks or supporting this. I think that's, that's a concern. I mean, I think we, we've gone way, way over. We've jumped the shark on indexing. Even founder Bogle, even Bogle before he died said he thinks we've gone too far. And that was a couple of years ago. I, I still like indexing. I think it has a place, but I, 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 yeah, I think we've gone too far with it. Yeah, and it's a, you could argue it's a very distorting signal, right? I mean, to the extent that markets are supposed to be forward-looking discounting mechanisms of the future. Well, I don't know if that's really true anymore. Oh, I, I, I think it's true. Uh, actually, my favorite, so if I'm putting on my trading hat now, and probably what people are listening to this space is for is to get some insights on where to really get the trade, really where to make money in the markets. I, I, I still think that these companies are, are relatively, are, are valued relatively 
evenly and, and fairly in markets. And what I look for and what I would encourage everyone on the, this sort of space to look at is, is create a list of the companies that you think are the strongest that are maybe fairly priced now or even expensive now. And just keep that list by your side or accessible uh, because what really is the opportunity is when you call it blood in the streets or the sell-off or COVID sell-off or whatever. But when the flows go out of the market, correlations go to one, markets go down, everything gets sold off. That's your opportunity to buy, call it Apple, Google, Microsoft, or like some of these tech names that are amazing that are not in the S&P yet, which I think is very powerful because once you get into the S&P, you just, your capital market structure changes. Now you have a perpetual flow to your company. So some of these smaller tech stocks, especially at the high multiple level, CrowdStrike, Cloudflare, DataDog, Palantir, Shopify, like it, it, these, I think these are incredible companies. So if you, you can create this list, I think the market fairly values them. They're quite expensive. I think the most important thing is have that list. So when the market sell-up happens, you can just back up the truck. All right, let, let's get into that because everyone talks about Mag7, but you just alluded to it, right? Tech names, not in the S&P or that are not getting any real attention, but have similar types of growth trajectories. You mentioned some of them. Let, let's go a, a little bit more in depth on some of the individual names on your own watch list. Yeah. So so Cloudflare is my favorite. I, I happen to know the management team and uh, just through through Boston Networks. And the uh, the power in some of these companies, whether it's Cloudflare specifically or companies like them, is I like using a couple of the examples. Like Warren Buffett couldn't even buy, couldn't add Cloudflare to the portfolio. The market cap's like 20 billion it's just phenomenal, like way too small to even show up on the radar. It wouldn't move the needle at Berkshire. And it's still a ph- phenomenal company. The route, like, I'm going to mess these numbers up, roughly 20, 25%, maybe even 30% of all market, uh, internet traffic. They're a content delivery network, so they're, they are routing the traffic. They're also protecting the network. So you, for example, we're coming up on an election year. So the majority of the election websites will be protected by Cloudflare. I think in the last election, there was only a single candidate who didn't protect their website with Cloudflare and a security. And yes, it's an expensive stock. It's like, you might want to call it a meme stock because of like how much attention the growth cohort of people pay attention to these kinds of companies. But that's not really fair because again, if you have a COVID sell-off, it's at 80 bucks now. If you have some kind of crazy market event in Cloudflare, at 40 bucks, which by the way, I think it was after they had earnings in June last year, it dropped 20% after hours. That's an excellent buying opportunity, in my opinion, whatever, not financial advice. It's There is a lot of quality in these names. And just to add one other comment to that, people like to talk about unprofitable tech. There are a number of these companies that are teetering right on unprofitable. In fact, there's a really big spectrum and the valuations reflect it right now. The ones that are teetering on profitability, they're basically just plowing every dollar that they have back into sales and R&D. And th- th- those are really healthy. There are other ones that are just so deeply unprofitable, they'll never make it out. And it was funny, 23andMe was on the front page of the Wall Street Journal about this yesterday because, I mean, I've just, it, there's a cohort of these companies that are just, they're awful. $300 million market cap, $300 million of revenue, and $300 million of losses. And like, I don't know how... That's like really embarrassing. That that's the that's the sort of thing that makes people look at tech and unprofitable tech. And and when they're denigrating it, I think they're more talking about the twenty three and me's, and they're definitely not talking about the CrowdStrikes or Cloudflares. How do you go about even identifying those? I mean, is it just a function of 
they, their momentum is so strong that a moat in and of itself, I mean, you just mentioned revenue. I mean, fundamental deep dive are obviously a part of this too, but how do you even go about identifying companies like that? Yeah. So we call start talking about some of these things, calling them moats or quality of revenue or quality of earnings. Pa- uh, Peloton was always really offensive to me as a company because you can just, I know people don't do it, but you can literally just do push-ups at home or go outside and running. Like you don't need the gym membership and you definitely don't need the Peloton. And I don't know, I'm a, I'm a cheap guy sometimes. So like when COVID happened, I bought just a regular exercise bike for 300 bucks on Amazon instead of the 3,500. And I just, you know, you just go into the zone. You don't need the iPad telling you what to do. So there's, to me, there's no quality there. Uh, obviously like very high hyped company, everyone's buying and selling it, but like you have to be a trader to be in and out of that quickly. That's so different. That's so, so different in my view of the quality of these companies. So Axon is popular. It, that had a ticker change. And before it became Axon, it was, it was, I can't remember the old ticker, but it was basically like a police cam company. And there's like when a police cam company comes up, there's really only going to be one. Like these police departments are not going to go out and, oh, let's just use two vendors and the systems will never talk to each other. And now they're going to pick one. And now they have like cloud storage of all their video and it's using court system. Like it's a critical function, like critical, critical function. So I wouldn't ever compare the police camera data center system to like to a Peloton. It's just from just a simplicity perspective. I, I, I guess the answer is like, you have to look at each one of these elements. And I guess over time, you understand what's valuable and what's interesting about the actual business. What are they selling? Is it like a commodity or is it something that is they're really just going to own this area? And by the way, this is if you're taking this framework that I'm saying, it's not going to help you identify a sales force because to me, CRM systems have been like the most commoditized system. And I've always been wrong on Salesforce. I've never invested in them. They just keep making money for people and whatever. I missed it. But, but like, I don't see what's special about a CRM. Like it's just a database at a fundamental level. So maybe Salesforce has issues. Maybe they don't. Maybe they just keep winning and they'll win without me. But but yeah, so like Toast is another example of one of these small companies. They're just a payments company, right? They get into the into the restaurants. Restaurants are so squeezed. Anything that they can do to increase revenue, like why do they need another? Why do they need another kind of payment layer? Like they, they can just swap it out for Square at some point. Someone's going to build some kind of nice open source system. I just don't, unless Toast makes it really hard to switch, I don't see any, any quality behind that. So anyways, I just go through these names, sort by revenue growth and and start looking at who's got a quality business and who might be a more commodity business. And then how many positions do you typically like to concentrate a total portfolio in? So yeah, I'm managing money for people. So it always goes back to that. So if we just strip out the person and we're just looking at a total return portfolio, I'd like to get my favorite position, a top position in at like 10 to 20% of the portfolio. I'm happy with a really heavily weighted individual company at the top. And then I'm I'm happy also taking like a number of those positions at like maybe five to seven percent at the top and getting most of the concentration in the top 10 best ideas. If, if, if I'm just running a total return portfolio, that's what I'm looking for. And also, by the way, the challenge for me and for everyone on the call is we're sitting here January, February 1st. Someone comes to you with a $10 million portfolio and says, allocate it now. Like you can't buy these companies at these prices today and expect like a great outperformance over the next one to two years. I mean, maybe some of them you can. I think there there are some exceptions in there. But the problem that I've had 
quite a bit, all of us have had quite a bit in the last couple of years, is the date that the person arrives on your doorstep with the capital should not be the primary driver of when you enter the market. There's just way too much volatility. And someone coming in January of last year, if you're just allocating the day they show up, was going to dramatically outperform someone who came to you 12 months earlier. It's just tough. It's a tough environment for that. Yeah, and you're less likely to to keep the client if they come in at the wrong time, even if the very long-term performance would be strong, right? That starting point on the investor experience level will determine the likelihood of them even sticking to the portfolio. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Yeah. And that's, this is why I said at the beginning of the call, I'm like a generalist is I like to borrow from different industries. So they say in real estate that the money is made on the buy and not the sell. And I try to think about that way in these companies too. I don't think I like, I think you just, if you just close your eyes and put Cloudflare in the portfolio and close 10 years from now, you probably, well, it's incredible how they've grown from I think 300 million at IPO in 2019 or 20, late 2019 to over a billion now in revenue. So, I mean, it's just incredible power behind their revenue growth and their products and the fundamentals. No investor is really like going to underwrite that future progress, but I'm like very confident that these guys will continue to deliver. So you can just own that for long term, but I don't like that long term investing. If you're going to manage money for someone, you have to add value from the day one. You, you have to be like, people don't like to lose money, especially on the first tick. So I'm very cautious, especially today, very cautious putting new money in. And I think the longest I've waited with someone is like, I'll just hold cash for a long time, 12 months plus to wait for the right opportunity. Like, I'm going to work with these people hopefully for a long time. Hopefully they like me and I make good returns. So the entry point is more important to me. So let's talk about that in terms of the tech momentum so far this year and where there are vulnerabilities. There's been this, these headlines that the MAG-7 is now really the MAG-6, that it's whittling down, right? The number of stocks that are carrying things higher. Which of the really big popular tech names that are often cited, which of those do you think are most vulnerable short to intermediate term? Okay. I'm looking at the list. All right. Most vulnerable. All right. Let's say, let's do NVIDIA, because I know you and I have talked about that. My favorite stock in the world. By the, I think by it's the a good thing to talk about. I think it's just a good thing for people to know what's going on there. And just let's talk about it. Right. So it's at the very top of the of the it's the tip of the spear of the world of all the future innovation, all that kind of stuff. And NVIDIA is an incredible company. Managed and everything about them is incredible. Right. There's, there's not a single bad thing you could say about them. Um, but the but the problem that I view is take crypto as an example. The GPUs that crypto was using to mine, they started out with NVIDIA GPUs and they quickly figured out that it was cheaper to just use ASICs, cheaper and better to just use ASICs. So NVIDIA gaming GPUs and then crypto GPUs and crypto has its like dramatic ups and downs. And now AI GPUs, right? Or GPUs used for machine learning. And there's no question it's the best product, but I'm just like, when is, so NVIDIA is a design firm and the semiconductor world is all based around 
most of the chips get designed. And then essentially what NVIDIA's product is like a giant zip file that they email to TSMC and TSMC actually makes the, the product. So in headlines, what's coming, right? Google making their own, Microsoft making their own, Meta making their own. I'm really enamored with the talent of the semiconductor industry. And there's only a few people at the very top of the world. Maybe, I don't know if it's like fewer than a thousand who even know how any of this, how to even design these things. It's hard to get those talent, that, that talent. Maybe you pay them 10 million a year, maybe you pay them 50 million a year to keep them. But eventually OpenAI or Meta, these guys, it's going to be cheaper for them to get that talent and create their own ASICs in-house, send it to NVIDIA and get their own chips and put them in place send it to TSMC and get their own chips. So I'm just concerned Meta is not going to spend $16 billion every quarter for the next five years buying NVIDIA chips. They have what they have. And of course, they're always, we're always going to need better chips. I don't, I honestly, I don't think that there's any slowdown like ever in the next 10 years for better, faster chips. Like we've opened the portal into the AI machine learning world, which has been going for a long time, but like people just want more, better, faster. So yeah, I think ASICs are coming for NVIDIA GPUs and it's extremely expensive. And unfortunately, I just think it's, I think it's going to be, it's going to be a scary market day when they have that deceleration or, or some of their earnings start getting hit, eaten away. So anyways, that's my NVIDIA take. Just uh, reset the room for their meeting 20 minutes to earn. Please make sure you follow Max here on X. If you want to come up and ask questions, click that bottom left mic request button. And as always, this will be a podcast under Lead Lag Live. Thanks for the question. So yeah, cybersecurity, definitely a perpetual theme. Also a really scary world. If you want to start to get paranoid about the fragility of the system, like just start pulling back the layers on the actual, what is it like log four issue? Like there, there are some real serious, like fundamental issues in, in our modern architecture that honestly, I don't think they evolved in salt. But anyways, CrowdStrike, Cloudflare, the obvious ones right at the top. And I, and I picked both of those to talk about because I, they approach the problem from different angles. A crowd strike is really trying to remedy, trying to get ahead of issues. It's more of a risk management, risk assessment, risk solution. Whereas a cloud flare doesn't really get, doesn't really get talked about as a cybersecurity company as much. However, they have this zero trust architecture that they're leading on. These are brand names. Forget the brand names. It's more they're building the architecture from the ground up to be more secure, to not need cybersecurity protection. And that's like such a critical fundamental difference. One thing to just be aware of in, in this Cloudflare world is there's another company, Zscaler. Zscaler is in the NASDAQ because Cloudflare is listed on New York Stock Exchange. They're not in the NASDAQ, which is just, I think there's an interesting element about market flows. There's only 100 companies in, in the queues. And Cloudflare is not in there. It's not in the S&P. And I think there's an, a different capital market structure that opens up when they enter in the indexes. So Zscaler has a little bit of an advantage in that case. I think Zscaler, these are phenomenal companies. So I don't like, I don't want to overhype them. I don't want to cut them down by saying that there are holes. But but yeah, I think, oh, uh, you, you can't talk about the cybersecurity without mentioning Palantir, right? I mean, they're just, they're cool. Th- th- this is actually a small list in the public world. There's also a lot of stuff that's going on in the private world. And I wonder if we're going to maybe see maybe a round of IPOs that come out that will refresh this list. But yeah, I, w- I would be paying attention to CrowdStrike, CrowdFlare, and Zscaler from a cybersecurity perspective, and then also Palantir. And like I said before, know these names beforehand, because when the sell-off hits, this is where you're going to want to be buying, in my opinion. Speaking about the private side, just switching gears, you did mention that one observation you have that you think is going to be an ongoing trend is this idea that private credit keeps on eating the banks' lunch. 
which is yeah. an interesting thing to think through in the context of some of these blow-offs are happening with regional banks uh, and these ongoing stories around credit contraction. But uh, explain what you mean by that and why that's something that's worth paying attention. Yeah, so there are a couple of points I want to make about this that I think are critical. So look at what uh, KRE is, the regional banking ETFs. And I, you know, I feel bad when people are having a hard time in their industry and I don't want to like, you know, punch down. But, you know, the younger generation, the crypto generation, the tech forward generation has always been like, what's the point of these regional banks? Like, why don't, why isn't everything just done with an app? And my friends jump around to different banking apps trying to test them out. And the flow has been away from the banks. And I think their business model has hit the end of the road. And whatever, I'll make a comment about Jamie Dimon and JP Morgan. They're the biggest of the big and they have the most power in the world. But if you look at what their issues are, is they're, they're the biggest. They'll continue to consume other people, other banks. But but I think the game's over for them. The 2008-2009 regulations ended their ability to service loans, create loans, originate loans with certain metrics, certain multiples on EBITDA, certain whatever. There were just heavy restrictions on what they could do. So 2008 pushed that lending activity out of the banking sector into the private credit sector is what you would call it. And this is a better system, in my view. In fact, there's a great book about this, which I'm still slogging through, but it's, it is the correct kind of book to think about this. It's called Fragile by Design. And it talks about the history of policy in the United States, where we've had like a dozen banking runs in the history of the United States, while other countries have not. It is fragile by design. It's an acceleration of access to credit to grow the United States faster. It's done on purpose. And, and the crises that we have happen as a result of the design. Now, private credit, in my view, is a much more stable. It's a much healthier system. It will continue to grow because what you're doing is you're matching the source of the capital and the duration of the loans. They're just matched better with the investors. You get Michael's portfolio where he wants to get long-term rates of return, gets to invest in these loans and get the return and the private credit manager takes a spread. How it was done in the banking system or how it is done in the banking system, and we saw this in Silicon Valley Bank, is you're making five, seven-year loans with a capital that has a duration of a single day. I can pull my capital out of the bank and create a bank run and they underwrite that will never happen. But of course, it's fragile by design. It can and will happen at some point. It's just, it just doesn't happen in the private credit space because there's lockups. In fact, my favorite private credit fund, which I can't name the name of, it's come message me if you want to talk about it. They have two year revolving line of credit and a two year duration on the two year lockup on the fund. So your own personal capital is matched to the duration of the loans. You cannot have a run in that perspective. Now you're only left with credit risk. So anyways, that this is sucking all of the loan activity out of the banks. That's how they make money. Banks are becoming more originators and uh, to add one last thought on this, when you look at the sector, uh, I don't like the sectors. They they don't have good um, consistency on what they're actually mentioning. But the financial sector is is evolving quite a bit. It's becoming less banks, less regionals. Obviously, is a natural reorganization. Becoming more like what was Infotech, which is Visa and Mastercard, it used to be an Infotech. Now it's in finance and it's asset managers. So Aries, Blackstone, KKR, they are making their money by originating. In providing private credit services. And so Aries has done extremely well as a stock. There's different ways to take advantage of this. You can buy this. the company that does the, the private credit. Aries is the number one oldest oldest company there. And or you can just invest in the loans yourself. And the rates of return are great, oftentimes higher than 10%. It's like when I hear 
private credit. I'm also thinking, obviously, about DeFi and crypto as a part of what each bank launches. Yeah. How, how does that factor into it? I mean, it, yeah, there are different domains, right? But I mean, there, there's some connection there. I love crypto and I love all the people in crypto. And I, I don't want to like add bearish narratives to it, but they just have not come anywhere close to figuring this out. DeFi is cool. Like the tech is cool. The blockchain is cool. And I should, because I hold tech crypto, I should be, and that's my whatever disclosure. I should be just hyping it. But the problem is like they have not figured it out. There, there's just like a loan is a security. There's just no way around it. So it has to be registered. You're, when these loans get originated, they're based on fundamentals and the covenants are based on fundamentals. People actually have to show up to work, make payments, let these things flow. It's not a commodity like Bitcoin was categorized. So crypto is only going to really grow in the private credit space or DeFi is going to grow in the private credit space as like a backend software that helps the banks and the private credit world function better. It's not going to go off on its own outside of the SEC and outside of whatever that's, it's not going to happen in my view. Okay, let, let's talk about, take this step back again. We talk about tech, we talk about credit side. I want to talk about Instinct for a bit. Now, full disclosure, right? Instinct is hard to quantify. It's hard to backtest, but we all have it, right? When you're doing separately managed accounts, you have more flexibility to your point earlier, Max. You can be bullish on tech, but there's going to be maybe a part of you that subconsciously gets nervous about some stock that you're holding. So when there's a disconnect between your analytical side and your instinctual side, what do you do? Yeah. So if you start at the beginning and the goal is never to lose money, then you're not really, you might be underperforming if you're not in the market, but you're not, you can always be patient. So I guess one of the instincts is you don't have to, you don't have to ride through the worst. You don't have to accept that worst. And there's a couple maybe instinctual things that have changed for me over the last decade. One is you can't time markets and the other is you can't pick stocks and neither of those are true. And that, that became, that came out instinctually, I would say, or I listened to the instincts because while index, indexing has been so good to so many people, so many investors, it really only works in a rising tide environment. And we're getting to the end of what has been a long rising tide, maybe globally, maybe in the U.S. and the drivers of those indexes are still individual stocks. You have to know, if you're going to talk about where the S&P is going to be next year or the year after, you're talking about where the individual companies are going to be that drive that index. You just can't separate those things. So I guess the instinct for me was like, okay, great. Thanks for the index return. It's time to go and look at these individual companies that are driving the index and start to understand them and learn them. And, And the instinct for me also that's driving it is, all right, if the S&P is going to be stagnant or we're going to price to perfection, the MAG-7, where's the next place of returns going to come from? And I think it's going to be the companies that are going to graduate from adolescence, public market as adolescence, into the S&P. They'll become mature companies over time. It's just all these people showing up, they're working hard, they have their strategies, they have insanely capable top talent in the world. Like there is going to be, there is going to be growth out there somewhere. Or as people say, there is always a bull market somewhere. So I guess it's just my instincts. Is just, sure, we're all going to re- get replaced by AI. Some version of this is going to be able to be like done with machine learning. But for right now, my instinct is just go and find growth somewhere. I'm finding it in private credit. I'm finding it in the smaller cap tech sector that will mature over time. And then everyone holds MAG7. So you can't like, can't say that's a good idea. Can't say it's alpha. Can't say it's a bad idea. It's just like a core portion. So I don't necessarily try to add value around MAG7. It's just like everyone's going to own it. But yes, I guess the instinct is the world just changes so much over time. Like there was a time before with crypto where Ethereum just didn't exist, right? And then on the next cycle, Solana didn't exist. 
right? And I think there's going to be another, maybe tokens are over, but, or maybe not. Maybe there is another alternative layer one or something else, or maybe there's a crypto that can solve chargebacks, which is the thing that like crypto hasn't figured out. Maybe that comes in 2026, but the instinct is to, it's just to be open to how much the world changes. Can you explain that point about the chargeback? Because I think that's something I myself don't hear much about that. Yeah. So again, everyone loves, I like to pump crypto, talk about it, I hold it. But yeah, the biggest problem with crypto is they just have not figured it out. That is the basis of the entire payments system is chargebacks. You're basically doing a risk analysis of the um, the best financial technology that we've ever invented is the credit card. Like I, I had a, someone bought a pair of shoes in San Diego on my credit card and just I just flagged it on my account. They changed my card number and sent me a new one and I wasn't on the hook. Like, I don't have to worry about anything. I got, I, I'm happy to whatever, pay the 2% or whatever credit card fee I have. I think my Chase Sapper card is like $600 a year, less $300 travel card. So 300 bucks. I have perfect protection and whatever. I guess I'm stuck in the old financial system and I'm a slave to the dollar or whatever you want to call it, but I'm fully protected using that credit card. And and merchants are, they have to deal with fraud and, and whatnot, but essentially the entire credit card system is, is works with, works around chargebacks, which are like the ability to reverse payments in, in certain circumstances. And, and crypto just has not addressed that. So when you hear like Jack Mahler, who's funny and like a leader in the Bitcoin world, but he comes out and he says, boomer credit cards are stupid and we're just going to, we're going to replace them. Like I, you just can't talk about credit cards without talking about chargebacks. So I, every time I hear that, I just I encourage everyone listening. If you really want to follow the crypto narrative, if it's ever going to replace Visa or Mastercard or anything, it's going to have to figure out. Last thing that I want to bring up because I I didn't know this until you sent me a DM on this. You were in a documentary, the New Americans. I just look it up right now. New Americans Gaming Revolution. Um, yep. First of all, how did that even happen? And what exactly is that about? Yeah. So I write a, an article every week. Comes out on Thursday at six a.m. and I'm been doing it for a long time, very long time. And I almost never skip a week. And so when GameStop happened three years ago, I was trading around it, just, you know, following all the fun stuff that was happening. And the me- I loved the memes. I thought it was like, it was one of my favorite times in, in the investment world. I was like chaotic. It ended with an insane amount of chaos. But, but anyways, I wrote a big digest on it, which I think the most interesting thing to share with you guys is on the meme stock world is that social media organized buying is is a new phenomenon because we have these Discord channels, Wall Street bets. The numbers really are staggering. So, a hundred thousand people, members. Maybe it's even a Twitter group, Twitter Spaces, or whatever. A hundred thousand people out of Twitter Spaces with ten thousand dollars a piece, which is the minimum that anyone would be investing with anyway. Maybe it's a thousand dollars, but like ten thousand is a fair minimum. That's a billion dollars of buying power, and so. A lot of these companies, most of the companies in the SM or in the stock market, there's about 4,000 of them. Most of them are like, you know, 10, $20 billion companies. So like a motivated group of people can essentially, I mean, they're not going to go out and like do a buyout, take it private, but they can really move market if they all coordinate. So right now I'm watching, uh, Dave Portnoy's like Davey day trader stuff on Spirit Airlines because he's got 3 million followers. His view, his videos get 700,000 views. She motivates a hundred thousand people with 10 grand to buy. That's a billion dollar buying power on a less than billion dollar company. Like that company can become an insane meme stock overnight. So anyways, I wrote about this on D. Timoner's documentary person. She, uh, she's won Sundance too many times that she's not allowed to submit to Sundance anymore. She's, she's awesome. Her, her documentaries have been going out for, for decades and are in the MoMA. So 
she did this one. Uh, I think she, there, she was approached to do it about the founder of Wall Street Bets, but then she got motivated to talk about the similarities of Jan 6 and the kind of utopia rebellion that was going on around Game, GameStop and how that was the same energy. So they just, they hit me up and I just said yes, and I didn't know it was going to happen. And then a couple of years later, it debuted at South by Southwest. It's a really fun movie. It's on Netflix. It it came, it came was released on, on New Year's Day. So I encourage you all to watch it. I think it is because it's a documentary. It's not it's not a drama. I think it is the best representation of what actually happened during the GameStop era. And I'm glad the movie exists because I haven't watched that money. I'm a little I, I don't really want to watch it because I love that period. And I, I really like those characters. And I, I I'm worried they're not going to do it justice. So if you want to see the, the real story, it's the new, the new Americans. Final few minutes here, Mac. Do a quick pitch on those who might want to uh, look to you for separately managed accounts. Oh, yeah. So I, I think the first thing that happens, what I've noticed is people read my articles for a long time before they hire me. There's a certain level of comfort that happens that's just natural in the investment world. So I publish my article every week. That's just my medium. I'm a little, I'm semi-active on Twitter, but more one-page articles weekly is my preferred format. So I'd encourage you to sign up on that. That's on my website, Osborne Capital, and it just gets delivered to uh, the inbox every week. Beyond that, I, I look, I manage capital based on the needs of the circumstance of the situation. So if it's uh, larger account balances that want more protection, that's why I'm so excited about the private credit space. There's some really interesting REIT opportunities. But if you're, but if you're also just looking for like pure growth, pure potential. I spend a lot of time on that too. I'm not a meme stock trader guy. Like I do some of that in my own stuff. I follow it because I think it's interesting. I think it indicates where markets are going. That's not where I, I get my returns. Um, I, uh, I, I run these separately managed account strategies, you know, for, at the individual level to also to get, to get pure performance. Everybody, please uh, make sure you follow Mac. I will be watching the New Americans tonight. So I can say I know that guy. I was on Netflix. And hopefully I'll see you all. Mac, really do appreciate it. Thank you, Michael. Cheers, everybody. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Leadlag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Leadlag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.